Hey there, Climate Torch listeners. It's Chris. Uh, just a quick note before we get into the podcast. Uh, this one is a little different than normal. Uh, we actually did this in collaboration with the On Deck Climate Tech program, where I'm also a uh, fellow. Uh, On Deck, in case you haven't heard of uh, this program, is uh, quote unquote where top talent comes to accelerate their ideas and careers surrounded by a world-class community. Uh, so far, us fellows have founded 400 plus companies and raised over $500 million to scale them. You can learn more at beondeck.com. So hope you enjoy this chat with uh, my Duke buddy, Paul Straub, co-founder of Wireframe Ventures. Welcome to the Climate Torch Podcast. My name is Chris Wedding, and I'm your host. As a former private equity investor, startup founder, professor, impact banker, occasional monk, and founder of Entrepreneurs for Impact, I launched this podcast to share positive stories of CEOs, founders, and investors tackling climate change. In these interviews, you'll learn about their high-impact companies and investment strategies, successes and failures, career paths, habits and routines for productivity and health, and recommendations on favorite books, podcasts, tools, and more. Among all the climate doom and gloom out there, I hope these discussions offer some light in the darkness and perhaps a model for what we should be passing on to the next generation. In other words, a climate torch. All right, let's get started. Cool to be bringing in a friend and collaborator in the space, uh, Paul Straub. And Paul, rather than me tell your story, let's have you tell your story. Well, the title and so forth. And I'll I'll unpack that with uh, with the questions. But cool to be chatting with the record button on, combining on deck and climate torch. Hey, Paul. Hey, Chris. Good to see you. Uh, sorry, I can't be there in North Carolina. I know most of the time we've met up. It's been back around our our alma mater and, and Duke, and so. Uh, it's uh, it's good to be here though, and yeah, at a high level, you know, I'm happy to let you kind of drive with the questions. But for for the benefit of everyone else, you know, I'm a co-founder and managing partner at Wireframe Ventures. We're a, a pre-seed and seed stage fund that is focused on investing in founders on a mission to improve health of people and the planet. And so, uh, most of the work I do there is is around climate. That's where I've been investing for. 15 years. Um, and so, you know, in terms of where we get involved, we like to be a first check, get a pre-seed or seed stage in a business and really work closely with founders during those first kind of, you know, early years uh, until they're at the point where, where there's, you know, a, a strong demand from series A and beyond. And, and they've got kind of a, a business that, you know, is starting to work. So that's the very, very quick background on who we are. Well, I mean, Perfect and exciting, and also really relevant to a lot of what uh, On Deck does. Certainly, in, in these cohorts, there there is the genesis, right? The seeds planted, in, MVPs created uh, around new ventures uh, in climate, which I thought that might be of particular interest to have you come tell your story through this through this venue. So, if folks go to your website, they're going to see you know both people and planet. Great, yeah. both are both are pretty cool. We like both. If you could maybe maybe kind of talk about the climate thesis or investment activity uh, for for climate as it relates to maybe this audience's interest, 
specifically, and then we'll kind of zoom out to what your investment kind of stage, check size, engagement looks like, if you will. Right. So within, I have to say, maybe to start. So go for it. And investing in this area for 15 years, you know, it used to be called clean tech. And that's, you know, kind of built the clean tech practice at, at my prior venture fund in the 2007 8 timeframe, rode that kind of up and down. And so um, I would say that, you know, for many years, kind of my area of focus was around renewables, built environment, you know, things that were kind of of that traditional kind of, you know, clean tech 1.0 era. And what's been great about wireframe is really, as we think about decarbonization, you kind of expand the aperture out and you realize that you can touch you know, nearly any industry. And so for us, we are agnostic in terms of whether you're working in ag, in transportation, manufacturing, uh, you know, in, in, in carbon removal and sequestration, you literally, you know, there, there's kind of an entire open playing field from our point of view. And we're also, we're agnostic from a technology standpoint, meaning, you know, we'll invest in synthetic biology, computational biology, you know, hardware, software, pure business model innovations. Those are all, we view those as great tools, right? And so what we care about is who is wielding those tools? What is the kind of product capability and expertise of a founding team to actually put those tools to work towards the mission around climate? And so that's, you know, so we don't think in terms of specific sectors or tools that we're backing, we think about you know, the, the kind of health of, of planet or climate as being the, the, the primary objective, and then want to be led by the founders, frankly, who, who have the insights and, and kind of the ability to put those things to work in a compelling way. Yeah, well, I wonder maybe if um, giving, oh, I don't know, two or three examples of not your favorite children, but representative <laughs> portfolio companies, as it were, that have some benefit to the climate, uh, maybe, Paul, would be a good idea. Yeah, I think... Um, and I'll, I'll mention a couple and, and you know, the, the most recent um, kind of exit that we've had is a company called Electrify, which is, a, a, you know, we, we backed, it was a team uh, actually out of ChargePoint who realized that fleets were a natural place for electrification to, to really take off, but there wasn't a software platform that could help the operations and management of those fleets. And so we, we led a seed round there. Uh, they ended up being acquired way earlier than we ever expected by, by Ford this past June, which, which actually is you know, really exciting on a couple fronts. One, it, you know, it was a great outcome for everyone involved, but more importantly, as you start to look, and again, with even today's announcement by Ford around their battery manufacturing uh, investment, their software is the cornerstone for the Ford Pro division. That drives, you know, if you think about where, you know, electrification has happened so far, it's been viewed as sort of a coastal phenomenon. And you think about what Ford is doing with their F-150 and their e-transit vans, it really has the potential to change the game. I mean, that is the biggest best-selling model of a vehicle for what the past 15 or 20 years and and the fact they're going all in electrification and and electrify is really the backbone from a software standpoint for that effort is incredibly exciting to us so that's one example Uh, another company in the portfolio is called span io this is a um, the founder arch rao had been the uh head of product at tesla powerwall design and launched that ran that for five years and had this insight that as you know, homes change in terms of uh, solar and storage and EVs and smart connected devices. Every one of those things, power flows through that old gray box on your wall that has not changed in decades. And the data from all of those things flows through that box as well. So it was the perfect place to kind of reinvent a product category. And, and so they've, uh, they've basically built a new smart panel for the home, which is beautiful aesthetic design, but also They've put a lot of, you know, kind of really compelling, you know, hardware, computational capability in that connectivity. And I think when we start to roll out more and more 
features of the next few quarters, it's going to be obvious to people that this is the cornerstone for an electric home. So terribly excited to be working with that team at Span. Maybe that's just one other example. And you'll have to stop me, Chris, because I can go on about the entire portfolio. I, I Bring it on. Let's, let's have a couple more. Yeah. Okay. Let's see. There's another There's another company that we are invested in. Which is uh, which is called MycoWorks. So this is a you know a founder I'd actually backed in a prior fund, uh, a guy named Matt Scullin, who initially ten years ago was working on thermoelectrics technology to do waste heat to power, and just built incredible respect for him and was thrilled to kind of come in and back him again at MycoWorks. And, and what he's doing this time is uh, they're designing a mycelium-based high-quality new material. So. The material is really a substitute for leather, but they've intentionally not positioned it as faux leather or as a mushroom leather. They, they're actually, their first product is, is with Hermes. They're going to be uh, releasing a bag later this fall because what they want to do is set a bar and demonstrate that this, that this new material does not sacrifice uh, in terms of performance on any dimension. And, and, and it is really, it, it, it's a it's beautiful, phenom- phenomenal kind of material. And when you start to think, about then where they can go. I mean, this can replace leather in any uh, place, you know, so anywhere from vehicles through, you know, apparel through obviously where they're starting kind of luxury and fashion footwear. Um, So that's one other example in the portfolio. And then we have a couple that we haven't yet announced, which I'm really excited about, but I can't probably talk about companies working on on biochar in the ag space. Another company that's looking at doing bioengineering of of plants themselves we have uh oh, we have another company in, in the ev space that that i'm i'm excited about called recurrent uh so recurrent is is sort of a consumer play in the electrification uh side they realize that 80 percent of the questions that, that people have when they go to buy an ev are all about battery health so you know degradation range and and it's the biggest impediment it's sort of you know the realization for for the founder and for us is that especially when it comes to buying a used ev Odometer, you know, the odometer is not the most relevant gauge of the performance of that uh, vehicle or the health mm-hmm. of that vehicle. It's actually the battery, which is, so you're going from 2,000 parts, you know, to 20 parts in the drivetrain of an EV, and the single most important one <laughs> is the battery. And so they've they've built a network of drivers nationwide, and they have you know a, a, a live data set by make, model, year across topographies, across climate where they're tracking and understanding real world kind of battery health. And then they're gonna use this to, to really enable consumers who are purchasing a used EV to have confidence and, and transparency around that transaction. We've done a lot in, in resale in the past. You know, I was the first seed investor in a company called Trove, which is um, runs the resale platform for Patagonia Warnware, REI used, uh, Eileen Fisher, Lululemon, Le- Levi's. And so I think that we see, for example, that play in resale and circular economy as a real way to have an impact in terms of consumers' you know, carbon footprint as well by not having to remake those goods that have a long life ahead of them. And so we see something like Recurrent is plugging into that because, again, to the extent that you can actually drive greater confidence and greater activity in a resale market for EVs, then what you're doing is you're helping more and more people move from ICE into electric vehicles to make that transition more quickly. And so we think that's really important. And it also should boost pricing and demand for those EVs, which again, should make it a, a more attractive initial you know, purchase proposition for anyone who's looking to buy an EV you know, that's new because they know that there's a strong you know, demand signal uh, and market for that vehicle when they decide to sell it. Yeah, th- those are great examples. And I think you know, communicate the breadth right, of opportunity 
in climate that I think many of us either on the phone now or who will be listening to this later, I think exciting to see how many climate solutions beyond the obvious things of say solar or wind, right? Yeah. Where you, we've, we've had trillions of dollars, hooray, but what, what are the next sectors that that could receive, you know, trillions of dollars uh, of capital? You know, you, when, when you mentioned Michael Works and their, I'll say alternative leather product, you said, yeah. well, look, you, you can't sacrifice beauty or maybe it was also convenience or aesthetics or, or, or functionality or cost. And I think that, that was a painful lesson, you know, for me to learn. 20 years ago, getting into, you know, private equity versus environmental science of, oh, cool, that's the science. Great. Now make it work in the in the market. And, you know, if you want to reach the mainstream, you can't you can't sell trade offs or you can't accept trade offs, albeit you might do that. Personally, you are not (laughs) you are not mainstream. Don't sell to yourself. Yep. At least long term. uh, Don't do that. On all these companies, I think I think one question maybe some of the folks may be asking is obviously why. Right why you chose to commit to these companies, to these teams for whatever, you know, three, four, five, six, seven years. And obviously it's it's the total addressable market or it's the competitive edge, but it's really, it's the team, it's the founder. I think we have some of those founders, again, either at this podcast right here uh, or who will listen to it through the yeah. OnDate program. Can you just comment on what you look for in, in founders, whether it's skills or personalities or who knows, yep. that give you guys confidence? Yeah, in fact, and that's the most important dimension. And people, people sort of always say, hey, you know, we invest in people and, and, it's, and, and, and it's true. And, and yet it's also something that's very hard to kind of put into practice. You know, when we're investing at a pre-seed or seed stage, it's, it's always pre, you know, pre-revenue. It's, almost, it's often pre-product and it's where we like to spend time. And so one of the things we're looking at is, hey, what is the unique insight or founder market fit of you know, this individual? What is it about the problem they're trying to solve, the insight they have into it, their demonstrated ability to deliver a great product, or in the course of our interactions, their clarity and understanding of the product that they want to go build? We know things are going to change. We know that where you start may not be kind of the product that you end up going to market with. We also know that you know, when you set out with an initial kind of market focus, you might shift that as you you know, begin to do market discovery, and that's totally fine. And so what actually ends up being really important is a person's ability to navigate that process and, and to be able to, you know, kind of adjust and build and iterate on product, their ability to, uh, to sort of discover that, you know, to work towards that product market fit. You know, the characteristics we look for, it's, it's hey, one of these individuals, people that we would want to work with and, and, and you know, mutually, would they want to work with us? Does it feel like there's a compatibility here? Because we don't want to just be, you know, on your cap table. You're running the company, but we want to be, you know, an extension. We'd like to be able to kind of plug in and just be a resource to, to the teams that we back. And so does it feel like there's a good kind of mutual fit? But in individuals we're looking at, you know, what are the... Is there that uh, that product background, that product uh, you know, clarity in terms of what they want to build? Is there a uh, you know, an ability to recruit other people to their idea? So, is there some you know, is there some charisma around what they're doing that can allow them to recruit co-founders and other strong you know first employees, ultimately future investors, uh, you know customers? So, even if you're a scientific founder, you know, do you have a commercial instinct and an ability to articulate what it is that you're building, how that how that kind of shows up in the real world, in in, in some way, as and, and ultimately could become a business. 
those are those are really important factors. And then, you know, as we as we work through getting to know someone, is there a level of, of transparent, you know, transparency and just an ability to sort of, you know, as we push on things together, look, there's a lot to figure out. And so is there an awareness of, yeah, I don't know the answer to that, or maybe this is what I think I'm going to do to figure out the answer to that. And does it feel like there's that then speaks again to that ability to learn? Like, is there is there going to be a high cadence where a founder can compound themselves in terms of their own growth as the company grows? Because that's a critical success factor. So if we look at someone who is constantly learning and then building that learning into the way they develop an organization, that's a very powerful thing. And, and where that shows up strongly, we get really excited. Speaking of um, the ability to to learn and adapt, the podcast interview I did just this morning was with uh, Max Nova at uh, at at NCX yeah. and super high energy. But when I when I get to this next part of our chat, you'll see I ask about kind of habits and routines, right? That uh, help make founders, CEOs, you know, successful. I say in quotation marks because, of course, success means many things. But one of the things he said was. I read a hundred books a year, plus or minus. And I think for an investor to hear that, uh, as long as you, you get comfortable that he still has time to run the business, ha ha ha. You're like, damn, this guy loves to learn clearly. What I think clearly a pretty coachable person. Right. And I think when I was in private equity, that was something we thought about too, was you want uh, vision and confidence and all the rest in the founder, but, but will they take feedback? You know, can they be uh, coachable to others insights into what could happen or what could be, Versus just their their direction. So I, I hear some of that in your in your. Well, comments. yeah, and and for me, look, it's not. I think that uh, we we don't have the answers, right? Just yeah, be, yeah. like we 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 can help prompt a, a thought process. And so for me, it's not just hey, will someone take feedback? Because that presumes that whoever's giving the feedback is giving good feedback. And mm. a lot of people around startups don't always give good feedback. But I think what is important is can the person be open to hearing feedback and mm. then synthesizing that for themselves in a way that you know pulls together because oh, they're going to receive in many cases conflicting feedback from different sources totally. so can they can they process that and can they learn and and you know and they may not for example agree with us on certain points but can we have a conversation about that can they sort of figure out what is you know maybe valid or true in feedback that they're receiving and then you know chart their own course they've got to have a north star mm-hmm. and move and so but it's important to sort of be able to to incorporate all of that learning as you yeah, know for sure how about if we if we zoom out, you know, to ten thousand feet? Are there areas within, say, climate uh, solutions that you think, gosh, pretty crowded, hard to pick a winner? So we're we're kind of not trying to make investments these days. Are there areas that, f- that feel less crowded, or is that a question that <laughs> that doesn't yeah. match with your all's uh, investment approach? Uh, look, there's um, the areas that are that are the most crowded, I think, right now are the ones which combine climate and SaaS in some way. And I think it's because all of a sudden, and it's it's great to have more investors kind of coming into this category. It's, you know, we certainly still don't have the founders and capital we need relative to the scale of both opportunity and kind of urgency of the problem in climate. But I think that a lot of the capital that we've seen coming in that's more generalist capital is, you know, starting with, hey, we see these kind of uncapped, you know, valuations and potential of SaaS businesses like in the enterprise space at large. And then climate all of a sudden seems hot and you put those two things together and it's just explosive in terms of, you know, kind of the valuations and the expectations that are being created for companies. So that's where we see it. We've seen a lot of kind of investors who maybe two or three years ago wouldn't have even looked at anything in climate. Now all of a sudden 
um, really putting a lot of capital to work. And not that and we love software businesses too. Look, Electrify was a software business. We've got a lot of other software businesses that we're backing, but it's just something that we're aware of in terms of kind of the competitive dynamic for companies. But that competitive dynamic also brings an expectation for founders once you've taken that capital, particularly at, you know relative to the state that you might be at, to grow into that valuation and kind of exceed those expectations. And I'm sure there'll be people who do it. And I think there'll also be some cases where, you know, they, they don't quite get the ARR or get the kind of, you know, growth that, that they're they're expecting. And then that gets to be a, a sticky point, a tough point for companies to navigate. There's a lot of capital related to that. There, there's also, there's a lot of interest. And I think for good reason, and I think this is an area, there's a lot of interest in, in carbon removal technologies, both kind of natural and technical. And obviously, and Max and the team are, are kind of working in that area. I think it's terrific because it's certainly needed, but it does feel like there's some echoes of the first clean tech boom in that. And I'm very aware that I could be sort of anchored in terms of some of the things that haven't worked in the past. And so I'm trying not to sort of, you know, I'm trying to remain very open to, to what's going to work this time and why, because things are very different. But there's just an enormous amount of capital flowing into technologies that you know, still have a lot of technical risks, still require a ton of capital, project capital to scale. And if they succeed, are ultimately competing largely on a single dimension of price against the commodity, which are the characteristics of what happened in biofuels or in mm-hmm. you know, solar materials a decade ago. Technical risk, ton of project capital required for manufacturing or deployment. Before that, technology is de-risked. If you win, guess what? You're competing against you know, against in that case, you know, coal or natural gas, you know, kind of uh, generated electrons in this case, you're competing against the price of CO2. And so you just pair all those things together and gosh, we certainly need some great solutions to suck carbon and, you know, store it for, for, for centuries. But I think there's, you know, still a very early market. And so I think there's a, a little bit of a, of a boom happening that we're gonna we're gonna have to see kind of how it shakes out. I think there'll, there'll be some some winners, and I think there'll be some some folks that can't quite get it to work, or can't get the deployment capital, or ultimately find that it all works, but maybe they're stuck at you know 150 or 200 dollars a ton, and, and the market to really scale demands something like 50 dollars a ton or something, you know, some other number. And so I think that's where, yeah, we'll see how it shakes out. You, you mentioned um, some of the lessons, or maybe you know, a pain pains from the carnage from cleantech uh, version 1.0 clearly you were you were there a, as an investor yeah. i wonder if you can share i don't know two or three you know insights that frame your all's investment approach at wireframe based on what you learned in the trenches in the first kind of go around under under the umbrella of cleantech yeah well, I mean, I think I, I touched on some of them right there, which is yeah. just, just to be thoughtful about you know the type of the type of risk that you're trying to that you're trying to solve for at different stages of your your funding growth. And if you you know if you think about like what you're targeting long term, does it look like a venture scale business? Because if you're taking in venture capital, you ultimately need to build something that's you know high growth, high margin, high terminal value potential. And so, you know, if everything lines up and you're successful, does this business potentially have those characteristics at scale? And, you know, along the way, are you going to be able to source capital to kind of work through each, you know, each stage gate or each step in, in terms of technical risk? Or, or do you need to run a play? And, and, and I think, look, the, do you need to run a play that requires a lot more capital early? And today there are funding sources for that. And I think you just, you have to look no for, further 
than than folks you know like Forum and others who, who are doing terrific work. And I think the Forum team is is tremendous, but like they've you know required a lot of capital before they get uh, to commercial deployment. And I think some people can pull that off. And they've have a phenomenal team, but a lot of people are, are going to find if we have any shift in the funding environment that getting that capital is going to be difficult. So I think the thing that I sort of look at and I say, you know, the first time around, and this is true with any sector, you know, there was a lot of there was a lot of signal that ended up being noise, right? And I think if you think about people would look at, hey, so and so raised X amount of capital. Or yeah, I think about even within a, a, my personal experience, we had there was a, a group called Clean Tech Group that was the biggest convener in the space, right? They pulled in corporates, they pulled in investors, startups, they had this big annual gala, they were kind of worldwide. And Cleantech Group would have their list of the top investors and the top companies, it was a Cleantech 100. And, and so I think about that experience and, and we had, I think one year we had six companies that were top in their category. And we, you know, as a firm, my, my our firm was Cleantech Investor of the Year. Look, these are like great marks, you know, you're getting good press, you're getting good recognition. And ultimately, a lot of those things ended up not working. They weren't just in our portfolio, but in other people's portfolios. And so I think that it's really important to sort of just be attuned to some ground truth around what it is you're building and not get too distracted by, hey, you know, so-and-so is, is now, especially is showing up on social, on Twitter and promoting this business, or you're getting a lot of press, or you're getting, you know, a lot of funding, because those things don't necessarily correlate to the long-term success that founders are, you know, are trying to build, but it's easy to get distracted by it. Yeah, good, good contrarian advice. Um, avoid being kind of taken by the, the the headlines that may not be the one-to-one correlation with where that business will head as a as an exit scenario. Yeah. Um, you, you talked about valuation a few times. Maybe if you can say something about kind of ideal check size for you guys when you write your first check. And then do you do follow on what that may look like, kind of conditions around it? And then not numbers, but just how you think about valuation in these very early stages. So for a pre-seed check, we are investing, you know, anywhere up to say $500,000. And we we try to make decisions very quickly. We're largely betting on, you know, kind of there's, it's oftentimes just a founder, a group of founders. And for a seed round, we're typically investing between 500K and one and a half million. Um, we're, we're happy and oftentimes we'll lead rounds like we did with Span or Electrify with that, that size check. So even if around, you know, both of those cases, it was a three and a half million dollar seed round and, and we're happy to step in and lead a round that looks like that. We're also happy to be a second share. And, and, you know, I think the nice thing about our fund size is we've intentionally said it, knowing that we want to syndicate, we want to build good collaborative kind of groups around a company that if someone else is leading, we can come in with a slightly smaller check and still be a very kind of valuable part of the group. And so those are the two profiles in terms of how we proceed from there. So we think about focusing our time and our dollars really most actively leading up to that Series A stage. And so we want to, you know, we, we want to invest, you know, a, a pro rata check in that next round. And then once you get beyond seed, Typically, what we're doing is, you know, we're, we're kind of refocusing our time back on that next cohort of founders who are just getting going, but we're always a resource to founders. And what we see is that that creates great alignment. So if we have founders today who are in unicorn class companies like Mammoth Biosciences, you know, and, and those founders will still call us and be able to have just a very kind of honest, you know, sounding board because we're not on their board. We're not leading their next round. We were there. We're right next to them on the cap table. We were there. With them from the very beginning, and we're we're a resource to them, and so we will 
like we will always play that role, which I think is a, a spot that we enjoy and we love being in because it gives us you know, a chance to m- maintain that connection, but also just to be there as, as you know, as questions or, or, or topics come up down the road for founders that we've, we've backed from the beginning. Um, in terms of how that translates into funding, you know, typically what we've done, and we've, we've done this a few times, when companies get to the Series B and beyond, we have a great set of LPs who are, in many cases, family offices. Some are very kind of well-known, active family offices in this space that also like to make direct investments. In some cases, those, those groups will actually lead rounds. In many cases, they just want to continue to support companies as they grow. And so what we do is, you know, we're a seed fund. We're focused on that stage. We're not going to get involved in kind of series A rounds. And, you know, and, and so as it gets to, you know, for, as a new investment, so as it gets companies get to series A, series B, series C, we can pull in our LPs as a funding source. But, you know, typically, especially in this market, you know, as you start to kind of mature through those stages, there's there's a lot of capital. And so for us, the benefit is, hey, we can extend the access for our network and bring some of those folks in, uh, which which also as founders, some of those groups have their own unique kind of insights into the markets, activity in the markets, networks, and, and, and so it's an additional source that we bring to the table. And on the on the valuation side, is there any kind of guidance you give to to entrepreneurs that are that have a certain number in mind and you have to kind of reshape how they think about this versus a step up to the next round, et cetera? I think the way we look at valuation is just it's paired with round size and stage of development. So look, the the, the founder should go out and put together the best round that they can, realizing that this is a single point in time. And what they're trying to do is is obviously build you know a, a line that is you know hyperlinear in, in terms of the the value and the the the, you know, the performance of their business. And so if you take a valuation that is out of step with what you can grow into and deliver, it's a challenge for everyone. Or if you take a valuation and you don't take enough capital to give yourself the best shot at, at, at success in terms of growing into that and achieving that. So we, it's a conversation we have very early, which is, hey, look, let's really understand you should be raising an amount of money, not because that's what kind of seed investors want you to raise, but because it's the right thing for what you feel are the most important uh, you know, milestones in your business. So let's talk about what those are. Let's figure out what the right amount is. And does it feel like you're set up for success? And then, you know, that translates into, you know, into, hey, you know, where, where are we comfortable offering evaluation? Typically, you know, we're we're looking to make investments. We'd like to, to own, you know, high single digits um, with our, you know, with our investment. Um, and so that's what we're targeting. And it's it's something that you know works out most of the time. Doesn't always work out. We don't want to be kind of overly focused on that. We want to work with the best teams. But I think these things all do come around because at the end of the day, you know, especially at the pre-seed or seed round, um, I know there's some groups that are writing twenty million dollar seed checks right now. But I still don't think that's the norm. I still think there's you know there, there's going to be there's go, there's going to be some expectations around what a team can deliver. And, you know, when, when we look at it and when founders look at it, one of the biggest risks is going to be, do you have a strong set of investors interested in following capital for what you're doing? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, which means you, you want to make sure that you've taken enough to deliver and you, what you've delivered is compelling and that you can ultimately get someone to step up and no one's going to want to do a down round or a flat round. So it's going to be able to step up and give you, you know, the recognition for what you've achieved. So let's let's switch from wireframe to to Paul to Paul as entrepreneur in the investor space. So I think mostly you're talking to other entrepreneurs starting things. 
So you, you finished, you know, at, at Claremont Creek, and then there was this period where you had to decide what was what was next, what became, you know, wireframe. Any, uh, I don't know, this is a big question, but any advice or, you know, nuggets of, uh, I hate to say wisdom, insight <laughs> that you had deciding, I'm going to start this for the following reasons. It's this kind of duration, let's say, let's, let's, let's press go. Well, this is really a journey for us. And I think it, actually starting Wireframe with, with my co-founder, Harsh Patel, felt very natural. I mean, it, it, we had both been um, on sort of a parallel career trajectory. We both had this shared sort of set of personal values and you know, we both wanted to focus our energy, you know, at the same kind of stage and the same type of company. So we did have to ask ourselves, hey, what's our reason to exist? Like we're a startup, like Wireframe, you know, especially going back, you know, five years is, is, is a startup. And we looked at, that sort of and said, what's our reason to exist? How are we going to win? And um, I think, you know, at least for us, we felt we had very good answers in terms of we were kind of on the, you know, on the backside. Clean tech was still a dirty word. We were still kind of relatively fresh off the crash. And at the same time, you had these hundreds of seed funds, you know, being formed, but very few people with kind of the deep domain network and knowledge and commitment to founders in these two themes, which was sort of our reason to exist. And like any startup, it was not, I mean, it was the first time we'd raised a fund. It took us 18 months to, to put our first fund together. Uh, and I think that we were maybe a little bit surprised by that because we had been in, in venture before and we had been, you know, and we, we we had been working in these themes. But I think what you realize is that, um, you know, if you're doing something new, it still takes time to tune that narrative for investors to really understand how you want to put that into action. And so we we had to to just kind of be persistent, and you know we got hundreds of no's from people who said no, you know uh, no thanks, you come back for the next fund, and and that's going to be true for anyone you know starting a company. And so I think being able to sort of have some deep conviction around why you want to do this and why you think you're the right person to do it, and being able to to, to continue to be persistent through what are going to be you know a, a, a lot of no's is 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 just. It's classic kind of startup one one, but it's something that we uh, we felt and we experienced, and and I think you know most people do. Yeah, that's that's. Uh, I'm not sure reassuring is the right word, but um, grounding, right? Yeah. To saying if you get a bunch of no's, it's not unusual. You should expect a bunch of no's. Yep. How many no's can you get before you start getting yeses? You know? And the key, the key learning was, hey, you know, how do you calibrate? Like, how do you calibrate who's a likely, yeah, who's a likely fit? And and if they're asking certain questions that just demonstrate that they are so you know, misaligned with what you're trying to achieve. Like you're already pushing a rock uphill. Like you don't mm. need to, you know, try to, you know, that there's some, there's some hills that aren't hills or cliffs. And like, they'll try to push it up that one because, <laughs> you, know, you know, so I think, and for us, it was that, Hey, you know, figuring out how do we tune and prioritize where we spend our time? Like who is, who, who is likely to be a good fit for us at this stage? Once we, uh, you know, once we get, you know, them comfortable with certain things. And I think that's, a skill set of just fundraising that you know that that that's important to, to prioritize where you're spending your time. Yeah, and and similar stories probably for you know finding your customers. You're, yeah. you're going to get lots of no's, but hopefully with each no, you're like, oh, that's not the right profile. Let's change yeah. who I go after and how I message yeah. that prospect. Yeah. yeah. How about a how about a question on um, you know kind of personal habits and routines, uh, Paul? So uh, I don't know. Daily, weekly, monthly—you know, pick your flavor. Uh, productivity, or or health, or mindfulness, or whatever. What what are some of those that kind of help you do what you do? 
Yeah, I mean, and and for me, you know, I grew up on the East Coast, and and moving out to to the Bay Area 23 years ago was largely so that I could have access to to the to the things we enjoy here. Personally, I'm a cyclist, and and so for me, that that's you know, getting on my bike is the best way to just start to kind of process in background a lot of the stuff that you know has been kind of in the foreground that I've been focused on, but it lets me have a little break uh, from from kind of the intensity, especially of our two-dimensional world currently in Zoom. Yeah. Um, and, and, and I think the other part of it too, and, and you know, we have um like many, many folks, we we have kids, you know, we have, we have a daughter who's who's in school. And so it's it's trying to create the spaces in the day where there's a space for family and for her. There's a space for me where I'm not doing Zoom. And so I will block you know portions of of the day where I can just do more deep kind of thoughtful work that's not driven by what emails are showing up, not driven by, you know, what Zooms I have scheduled, that, that creates a little kind of mental space. And I think that's just so important. It used to happen, I think, for people in different ways. It certainly happened for me when I was commuting into the city every day. Uh, I would take the ferry. And so there was that, that kind of half hour on the ferry where, where I could, you know, do a lot of that. Um, and so I think we've all kind of had to adjust routines. And for me, it's been creating these blocks to make sure I get the exercise and get outdoors. And, and then have some, you know, some dedicated times that really don't get infringed upon. Yeah. Yeah. I would, I would just second the whole deep work uh, piece. I, uh, I do my best to keep mornings until, until noon with, with nothing scheduled for deep work, fewer distractions, um, my agenda, not my inboxes <laughs> agenda, right. not always perfect, but uh, continual effort to do so. Yeah. Um, well, let's, uh, let's switch to see what kind of questions there are, I think I saw one maybe from from Miriam. If you want to just up, come off come off mute, Miriam, and go ahead and ask your question directly to Paul, it'd be great. Um, hi, thank you so much for your time, both of you. Um, so yeah, my question had to do with taking into account potential impact into deciding which companies to invest in. Mm-hmm. And and that is part of like a larger trend of having like all many like new climate funds coming up. And then also if you're seeing any pressure from LPs to quantify the investment, uh, the, the impact of your investments as well. Yeah. I think it's a really good question. Uh, there's, there's a lot of focus around, you know, around obviously ESG and impact. And the thing that we believe strongly is that the impact that, that we're seeking is embedded in the product or service of the companies we're backing. And so, yeah, at the, the way you have impact is is you give those companies the best chance of kind of scaling and and being successful because without that there there obviously is no impact. So we do in our investment memos we have a, a section which is you know which is around purpose right. So we we think about product people and purpose. Uh, those are core parts of the memos that we write to record our thesis at the time of investment. And so we try to understand, hey, what is the mission that this founder is really on? Is that authentic? Um, do we believe that if they're successful, you know, it has the potential to you know, have a positive climate impact at scale? In terms of measurement, though, again, we're we're investing when there are no metrics. And as anyone in startups knows, even with you know, kind of your first revenue, those signals again may not be true signals. Like your first revenue may not really signify anything about the repeatability of, of your business. And so we we don't we don't put metrics around our companies. We want to to back people who, as they get to the right point in their business, have an intention of of tracking. You know, obviously the 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 you know kind of the different dimensions of their business, including you know perhaps you know water saving, CO two reduction, whatever those metrics are for a business. But we're not imposing kind of a third party framework on anyone. 
So what we've done and what we just did our, you know, our first kind of uh, report this year, we just did a survey of our companies to understand, you know, what, what they're measuring and kind of where they are on their journey. Some of them are not yet measuring anything. Some of them are measuring something. Some of them will plan to measure something, but, uh, and they, they have an idea of what that's going to be, but they're just not mature enough to, to begin doing it. So yeah, I'd say there's a, there's a continuum and we want to be again, responsive and driven, you know, responsive to and driven by what our companies are doing. The most important thing for us is that they're building great, great businesses, great financial outcomes, because we believe that with that and with a product or service where impact is embedded, you will have impact as you scale. Yeah, Miriam, it's a good question. And I think um, certainly with larger companies, it's easier and more reasonable to say, well, no, no, like here are the, if, if you're in this sector, like here are the metrics from a whatever ESG perspective you should be reporting on. Um, but, but I think what I probably agree with and hear Paul saying is we're investing in impact companies. It's their core business to, to make positive impacts. And they're also different. How could we possibly have a one size fits all set of metrics? But Paul, I don't know if you want to kind of clarify any part of what I just said around impact measurement. No, I think that's that's accurate. And and you know, you think about, you know, for example, um, with some companies, it's fairly easy to identify. Like, you know, we have a, a company called Level Ten Energy, which is uh, basically a marketplace for you know corporates to procure uh, renewable power. And it's 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 pretty easy. You can think about you know how you measure kind of impact in terms of the the capital towards renewable projects and transactions they enable. Then there's other businesses like you know we have a company called Near Space Labs, uh, which is uh, you know, one that is doing high resolution um, earth imaging. And, and they have customers in the insurance space. They have customers in real estate. They have customers in government and they have customers in conservation. It's a horizontal technology platform that we believe, well, one, it's it's zero carbon because they're they're not launching rockets. They're capturing this imagery from the stratosphere with, with uh, a balloon-based platform. So the imagery itself is being captured in a, in a net neutral way, but the you know the applications are going to be varied whether it's around climate adaptation whether it's around conservation what we do know is that it's going to be increasingly important to have high resolution visibility on our changing planet with the impacts of climate and to be able to respond to address that and to be able to incentivize and support conservation efforts and so we think there are important places that they can play there but they're also working you know with uh, with customers who may not directly kind of have that impact and and so when they got started and we backed them you know that it was it was a team working on a technology, and and there was a period before they had anything to deploy. So again, there was nothing to measure, and they were still trying to figure out which market, you know, which market should they start with. Yeah, right on. We had a question in the chat about whether any of your investment memos were shareable. I'm pretty sure I know the answer to that. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, not. you know what we've done in a few cases, we've started to publish like a lot of people do. Hey, the why we invested, and so we, mm. we posted some of those to our website. Which oh, perfect. I think is a distillation of some of that with you yeah. know, some of the more uh, sensitive information um, omitted. Yeah. So Mahir, I would say great question. And look what you look what you catalyzed, right? Now we know there are a, a, a why we invested uh, kind of set of, of pages. So we'll we'll find that and put it in uh, our transcript for folks to, to take a look at, Paul. Uh, Ayodeji says, uh, what's your take on emerging markets? Yeah, uh, so it's not an area that we spend a lot of time focusing on simply because we don't have the expertise in those markets. And I think the market structures and the incentives tend to be very, very different. 
Um, I think there's huge opportunity. My brother, actually, it's interesting. My younger brother runs a company called Smile Identity that's focused on Africa. He he had uh, led the Coastal Impact um, investing effort for several years. And so he was investing in India and Africa. And when we would have conversations, it was just clear that even though we might be looking at some of the same technologies or same problems, that the way you thought about a company was just dramatically different if you were investing in a, a non-European or you know, North American-based market. So I think what that means is, you know, it gets to be very difficult for us if the primary go-to-market is in an emerging market to know enough about that market to make a good decision and to be a good partner for the for the founding team. I mean, which is, so it's hey, why should we be working with this team? Why should they want to work with us? And if it's you know an off-grid solution in in Africa, for example, what you know what do we bring to the table? And I think there's probably better people to work with for something like that. Cool. See, Sonam uh, here. What, if anything, are you doing on the policy front? Many of these technologies have to be operationalized in, in highly regulated physical environments. Yeah, it's true. Um, and I think it's very difficult for startups or small venture firms like ours to independently influence policy. So what we try to do where we try to partner with others where we can and, you know, and, and voice our support. You know, we just did this, for example, this week. Uh, Advanced Energy Economy is a, a trade consortium, and, and we signed a letter that was ran full, full page endorsement in the Washington Post yesterday supporting the Build Back Better plan as it relates to um, some of the climate investments. And so we will band together with other like-minded folks who have higher profile and larger budgets and and, and try to influence. With companies, we will, um, I think, what, what we tend to, to think of is, hey, what are the opportunities that might be underway that you're not necessarily aware of, or that if you were to partner with some larger players, you know, could have an impact that's very positive on your business without relying on that change or without relying on that shift. So for example, with, you know, with SPAN right now, I think there's some interesting opportunities around electrification of homes. There's obviously various local uh, policies, in some cases, state policies around home electrification. I think some of that work uh, can can be a, a good catalyst for SPAN, but we don't want to rely on that in terms of our path to market because, you know, it's too difficult to sort of forecast policy changes or rely on those in the timescale of a startup. Yeah, yeah, great question. What about, I wonder if you could tell a story of one or two uh, of the exits, or at least, I know there's one recent exit that was that was a good uh, a good headline for sure. Yeah, well, there's, we've had a couple of recent exits. One was Open Invest, uh, which was acquired by JP Morgan, and the other was, was Electrify. I touched on this a little bit earlier, and maybe I'll just give, just fill in the blanks a little bit on Electrify. I mean, what we loved about that team, so Mufi, the founder there, had been you know in product roles at Amazon, product roles at HP, very strong product orientation, and then had been an executive ChargePoint, and realized that ChargePoint, you know, that, that there was an opportunity to go and serve this market for fleet electrification that was sort of wide open, and he didn't see, he, he thought that you know starting something independently was a better vector than trying to do that, for example, through ChargePoint. So I was introduced to him by by a friend who was another executive ChargePoint. As he was getting the business going, and he was able to partner with uh, with his co-founder uh, Sanjay, who had been had a deep enterprise tech you know uh, background. He had been at um, uh, at, at Tibco and and Sybase, and so kind of built high scale kind of you know large large scale systems for for messaging and data management. And um, it was just a terrific team. And the story behind that you know was was largely they were on a path to build I think a very very exciting business, and we had. 
a really we we had we had some great interest in a Series A round, and and Ford approached the company, and just to our surprise, you know, was was ready to make a, an acquisition in the space. We hadn't expected that the space would pick up as much heat as it has this quickly. But when you start to see, for example, what Ford has been saying and rolling out publicly, it's obvious uh, that they're making a huge commitment, a transformative commitment to the company uh, with all the work they're doing, and so that created the opportunity in that case for for the founders to to, to sell. Yeah, excellent. Hey, look, great, great to chat via On Deck and via the Climate Torch. Love what you all are doing. You know, fun, important portfolio that you all are building. Excited to see what comes next. And I don't know, who who do you want to hear from, uh, Paul, for folks who are listening? Look, I, I, I view what we do is sort of um, trying to you know, pour our goodwill into the ecosystem. So we're not transactional in nature, meaning, yes, we're making investments, but we spend most of our time meeting with people who have kind of a shared interest in and the themes that, that that we're committed to, and so if anyone is, is is thinking of starting something or you know has an idea, it's never too early to have a conversation. It doesn't have to be a pitch. Uh, we we can sort of you know offer you know offer a perspective and 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 help think through something. And and if there's other co-investors, you know other people in industry. Look, the the thing that I love, I guess I guess maybe just to to make a final point, the thing that I love and have loved about being in this space for 15 years is it's in, incredibly collaborative. Right. We are all investors. We're all trying to build businesses. There's points where that gets to be competitive. But at the end of the day, you know, I still root for founders where we didn't end up getting into a deal or where, you know, where maybe my colleagues at another firm did something and we didn't. Because if it works, it's good for all of us. And so I want that's a collaborative mindset and spirit that I have loved about working in this space. I hope it continues as more capital comes in. Uh, and so we want to, you know, pour our good karma and goodwill back into that. And so we're always happy to to meet folks who have the same kind of passion and interest. So my my line is always open. I think it's I think it's well said. Hey, look, hope to see you uh, back at at Duke's campus for the Business School's Edge Center uh, some, sometime soon. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, All everyone. Right. Good stuff. Thank you for joining us on the Climate Torch podcast. We appreciate your time and we know how valuable it is. If you want to learn more about climate finance, startups, productivity hacks, and occasional blurbs on things like stoicism or meditation or conscious leadership, all with attempts, underscore attempts, at humor and levity, then please consider subscribing to our weekly newsletter called Zero, which you'll find on Substack or the Entrepreneurs for Impact website. Or if you are a scale-up stage climate CEO or investor looking for a peer group to share best practices, expand your network, scale your business, and not be so lonely at the top, then check out our Climate Mastermind program at Entrepreneurs for Impact. Finally, if you want to draw more attention to world-changing climate CEOs, founders, and investors, then I encourage you to subscribe, follow, or rate this podcast That, of course, makes it easier for new listeners to find and be inspired by these stories. All right, until next time, let's get back to launching ventures and growing businesses tackle climate change.